This past week, I was reading a book just for fun. Sometimes I do that. I read just for fun. And uh, I, this book was uh, about the late comedian and entertainer Johnny Carson. Anybody watch Johnny Carson uh, many years ago? Yeah, and uh, you remember him. You watched him along with 20 million people for 30 years. Uh, watch Johnny Carson. This book was written by arguably the guy that was the very closest to Johnny Carson. It was his attorney, Henry Bushkin. He was his attorney and confidant for 18 years. It was a great read, really was. I'm not, I'm not officially recommending, re- recommending the book or anything, but it was, it was a great read. What was interesting about Carson is that this guy that was so charming and so seemingly at ease in front of the camera as he interviewed his guests couldn't have been more different privately. Bushkin describes him as a guy that could be often fun, but incapable of having any lasting relationships, often very mean and uh, extremely unhappy. In fact, someone introduced Bushkin to Carson. The first time that they introduced him, they said, they said to Bushkin, right in front of Carson, said, Johnny Carson is the second most miserable man that I've ever known. The first most miserable is Johnny Carson's idol, Jack Benny. He said, the most miserable, second most miserable man that I've ever known. Pretty remarkable, isn't it? The thing, though, that was so incredibly sad, really, as I read the book, was the end of Carson's life. This man who was adored by millions of people, I mean, enormous celebrity, uh, enormous wealth, four wives throughout the course of his life, three sons, one of them had died. But this man that was adored by millions of people uh, died in his hospital room of emphysema, completely alone. Uh, not a soul around him. And I just found that to be incredibly sad. And I will tell you, you know, I, 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 uh, I don't know if you read a lot. I, I read a lot, and I read a lot of biographies of very successful people. And this is often the case at the end of their lives, that they often end up alone. And it's very sad. In fact, I would argue not much in life that's sadder than seeing these people, these very successful people, pathetically realize at the end of their lives that what makes life meaningful is not all the awards and the acclaim and the wealth that they built, but relationships. And for most of those people, many, if not all of their relationships have unraveled by the end of their lives. And it's very sad. We all know that what counts most in life really is the relationships that we build and that we sustain. We, all of us, we, we want community. It's the deepest need of the human soul, but we seem to live in a world that is unable to produce real community. If you've ever been in leadership for any period of time, you know that most of the time that you spend in leadership seems like, it seems like what you're trying to do is keep the relationships around you from unraveling. That's what you spend most of your time doing. The relationships of people underneath you and the people above you and the people that you work with and your clients is just trying to keep relationships together all the time. And, and I will tell you that, unfortunately, the church is not immune to this. Uh, I had lunch with a pastor a few years ago that was, he was getting ready to retire. He was, like, he was just white-knuckling it to retirement, you know? And he told me, he said, he said, Jeff, most of my job these days is just babysitting people. And he said, I didn't get into ministry to babysit people, and I don't, I don't want to do it anymore. Seems like, seems like we all know that, that we, we desperately need and we want community, but most of us never experience Anything that even remotely approaches community. Well, what I want to do today, as, we're, as we continue this vision series that we're in, I want to show you that the church is supposed to be God's answer to the human longing for deep and profound community. That's what the local church is supposed to be. 
If you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me in your Bible to the New Testament, to one of the Gospels. It's the Gospel of Luke. So you've got Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. John comes after it. Turn to Luke chapter 6. And I want to show you that the church is God's answer to the longing that all of us have for deep and profound community. Luke chapter 6. I want to welcome those of you who are new uh, to City Church. We're so glad to have you. Thank you for coming and, and being a part of our church. I want to welcome those uh, who might be listening to us on our podcast. We're in the third week, as I said a moment ago, of a vision series that we've been calling Vision Evansville and Beyond. And what we're trying to do in this series is clarify um, the vision that drives City Church. And I, look, I want you to understand, uh, I think sometimes we, I think sometimes pastors, maybe leaders in general, get this whole issue of vision a little confused. I'm not talking to you about what my personal desires are for City Church. And I'm not, I'm not trying to clarify for you what my hobby horses are for City Church. What I, I really want you to understand the theological whys behind what we do here at City Church. Because I think the scriptures really drive the vision uh, for the local church, for every local church. And I, just, I want you to understand the whys behind what we do. For instance, in the first week of the series, we talked about the fact that the cross is central to the vision of City Church. And we said, if you really want to Uh, If you want to understand, if you want to experience the power of the cross, you have to understand the offense of the cross. And we talked about that in the first week. In the second week, last week, we talked about why we believe as a church that the cross of Christ is the hope of the world. And we looked at the distinctive change that the cross of Jesus Christ brings into people's lives. This morning, as I said, I want to talk about the unique community that results from the cross of Christ. We're going to start reading at Luke chapter 6. Uh, verse 12. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, uh, who became a traitor. Verse 17, he went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil, uh, excuse me, those troubled by evil spirits were cured. And the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing uh, them all. I, I suspect that the subject of those verses doesn't really jump out at you, but, but it is exactly what I want to talk about today. The subject of those verses is community. And unless you read this particular passage in the context of the whole Bible, and specifically in the context of the book of Exodus, you probably wouldn't get the significance here. Jesus goes up, um, he goes up to a mountain to pray, and he comes down and he chooses... His disciples. How many disciples does he choose? Okay, he chooses 12 disciples. And then after choosing those disciples, he speaks to the people. He speaks God's word uh, to the people. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the book of Exodus, let me just kind of remind you. uh, Israel is freed from slavery in Egypt. And then after they're freed at Mount Sinai, God calls the tribes of Israel together. How many tribes? 12 tribes of Israel together. And he uh, sends Moses, who has a stunning resemblance to Charlton Heston, down the mountain 
with the law of Israel. Now, what was the purpose of that law of Israel? Most people would say that the purpose of the law of Israel was to show people how to be saved. No, that was not the purpose of the law of Israel. No, it wasn't to teach people how to be saved. That's, in fact, that's, that's narratively impossible. God doesn't give Israel the law until after he saves them from slavery. Okay, so he saves them from slavery, then gives them the law. What's the point? The point is that obedience is never the path to salvation. Obedience is always the result of salvation, but never the path to salvation. Okay, so what was the purpose of the law? Well, the law of Israel revealed the kind of deep community that would be possible if people submitted themselves to God's authority. So in in the law, God was saying that the reason that humanity unravels the reason that people are the reason that individuals are at war with one another the reason that families are at war with one another the reason that nations are at war with one another is because their relationships with God have come unraveled and then if a relationship with God becomes unraveled then all human relationships become unraveled and then if that relationship with God is restored then human relationships will be healed and so the law was saying here's the kind of community that's possible if people will submit to God's authority. Okay, so now, in this passage, Jesus is signaling. He's, 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 he's reminding us of that moment in Israel's history. When he comes down off this mountain, he chooses how many disciples? Twelve disciples. And then he speaks God's word to his followers. And he's signaling that, that this is the next stage of this radically new community that lives under God's authority, that submits itself to God's authority. This is the next stage in that radically unique community that God wants to develop, how he wants to heal and restore human relationships. And this community will have Jesus' power behind it and I don't know if you notice this, but it crosses racial boundaries. There were Jews there, but there were also Gentiles there. The text says that they came from Tyre and Sidon. Those were primarily Gentile communities. And so here, unlike in the Old Testament with Israel, it was all Jews. Now it's Jews and Gentiles. So this new community crosses racial boundaries. Okay. One of the mistakes that Christ followers make is that many of us believe that we were saved just so that we could have our individual sins forgiven. And that's not correct. It's true, yes, that your individual sins are forgiven, but that's not the only reason that you were saved. You were saved for more than that. In fact, let me say it this way, you were saved to become a part of a unique community of people called the church. You were saved to become a part of a unique community of people called the church. We are, the church is You understand the significance. It's more than just a thing that we do on Sunday morning. The church is God's answer to the deepest longings of humanity for real, true community. It's a unique group of people. Now, you you would ask the question, well, what makes the church uh, so unique? Well, two things characterize, um, two characteristics distinguish the community of Christ's people, a, a community like City Church, two things are supposed to characterize or distinguish us from um, the rest of the world. And I want to talk about both of those. I'm going to take more time on the first one. You just 
tell you, I'm going to take more time on the first one and then take uh, less time on the second one. Here's the first thing that's supposed to distinguish the community of Christ's people from the rest of the world. The values of the people inside Jesus' church are radically different than the rest of humanity. I'll talk about that, but I'll just say it again. The values of the people inside Jesus' church are radically different than the rest of humanity. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verses 20 to 26. Looking at his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you for that is how their fathers treated uh, the false prophets. These, These blessings... And these woes, if you look closely at these, are really two different sets of values that people have. One set, the blessings, are the values of the people inside the community of Jesus Christ, the the church. And then the other set, the woes, are the values that people outside the community of Jesus Christ hold. And I want to start with those outside the community of Jesus Christ. I want to just look at those. You can see those, the woes, in verses 24 to 26. And what you'll see is that Jesus uses, he describes, he describes their values in four ways. Okay? He uses the word rich. He uses the word full. He uses the word laughing. And then he says, all men speak well of you. Now, here's what he's referring to, Okay? By using the word rich, he's referring to power. He's referring to power. Because really, you know, uh, wealth and poverty are matters of power. They really are. How much power you have to affect your world. The second, when he he uses the word full, he's, he's speaking about comfort. These are people who... uh they're full. They're, they're, they're all their needs and, and many of their wants have been uh, satiated. You know, they have food, they have clothing, they have beautiful homes, all of that. The third uh, word, laughing, refers to uh, success. Because the word laughing is really better translated gloating. And, and when you gloat, you, you know, you're, you're saying, you're looking down your nose at other people because you're saying, I won and you didn't. And so what he's referring to here is success. And then, and then that phrase, all men speak well of you, what he's referring to there is recognition. Recognition. So you got power, comfort, success, and recognition. These are the things that people outside the community of Jesus Christ, those are the things that they value. It's, those are the things that they prize. Those are the things that they long for. They're the things that, that define them. And it's what they want for themselves. And by the way, it's also how they determine who should be in their community, who, who they want to have as friends. Uh, they want the same kind of people. You know, they're defined by the same things. It's how they measure other people's worth and who they want to hang with. 
Now, what I want you to watch, just, just watch this. I want you to contrast those four values with the blessings that Jesus describes in verses 20 to 22. These are the values that people inside the community of Jesus Christ have, and you'll notice that they are exactly parallel and opposite of the ones that he describes the people outside the community of Jesus Christ. Uh, the first is weakness. That, that's, you know, he, says, he says that you're poor. Remember, that's an issue. Poverty and wealth are issues of power. So, so weakness, number one. Hunger, that's sacrifice. Okay. Third, weeping, that's grief. And then fourth, exclusion. You know, these were people, you were excluded Followers of Christ, he says, he says, he says you're blessed if you're excluded, if, if, if men speak poorly of you and they see you as evil because of your relationship with me, he says. So you got weakness, sacrifice, grief, and exclusion. These are exactly the opposite of the things that people outside the community of Christ value. Okay? Jesus is saying that when you become part of his community, you experience this complete reversal of values. It's like you have to unlearn the values that you had before you came to Christ. If you look around the room, we've got these four banners that describe our understanding of how the spiritual growth uh, process looks. And they start with the word believe. And we talked about that in the first two weeks. That you believe, you know, we're, we're challenging you to believe in the cross of Christ. Then, then comes experience community. And that's what... That's what we're talking about here. Is the local church is to be a place of community. It's God's answer to the longings of the human soul for deep, profound, true, authentic community. And then the third word is unlearn. And what we mean by unlearn is just this, that when you come to Christ, there's a lot of things, a lot of values that you had, a lot of things that you believed, that you understood, that, that uh, conventional wisdom taught that you have to unlearn when you come to Christ. And one of those things that you have to unlearn are the things that you value. And people outside the community of Christ value completely different things than people inside the community of Christ. What what Jesus is teaching is that what the world values is unimportant in the church. And what the world despises is profoundly important in the local church. Now, now I I realize, I mean, even as I was working on this, I, I had the same thought. So I realized that when you read those values of Christ's community, things like weakness, sacrifice, grief, and exclusion... It's sort of like, wah, wah, you know, Debbie Downer. Really, seriously, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. That's not necessarily a community that I'm thinking I want to be a part of. Kind of sounds like the first church of the chronically depressed, not too excited about being a part of that community. Who wants to join that? I want you to make sure that you understand this. Now, listen, listen to me on this, okay? This is a very important distinct distinction. You got to get this. So, so, so listen up. Jesus is not, say that word with me, not. Jesus is not. He is not saying that we are supposed to seek weakness and grief and hunger and exclusion. And he's not, say that with me, not. He's not saying that we're supposed to refuse power, comfort, success, and recognition. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is that, A, in his community, we just don't value or prize what the rest of the world values and prizes, and, B, that we hold things like uh, wealth and 
comfort and success and recognition, when we have those, we hold them in great suspicion. Because frankly, there's nothing that distorts reality as much as power, success, comfort, and recognition. They give you a sense of control that, isn't, that you don't really have. It's a mirage. You don't really have as much control as they make you think you do. So we hold those in great suspicion. Now, at the risk of being repetitive, I want, I want you to understand this because I have known groups of people. In fact, I have worked for, uh, I've worked for people, I've worked for churches that I felt were ashamed of their success and their wealth. And they felt guilty about their success and their wealth. Understand this. God is not against success and wealth and all of that. He's not against it at all. What he's saying is we just don't, we don't, we don't take those things and say, wow, that's what makes a person really valuable and that's what pers- makes a person really important and this is what gives me my identity and it's what gives them identity and it, it, what makes, it's, it's what makes them worthy of inclusion in our community. We just say, no, it doesn't. That's not it. In a nutshell, what Jesus is teaching is that when you enter into a relationship with him, he gives you a radically new freedom so that you are no longer psychologically dependent upon power and success and comfort and recognition. That's what he's he's saying. Imagine imagine for the moment that you you get two people. Both of them have great jobs. Both of them make a lot of money, um... In their jobs, they have a lot of power, a lot of status, you know, a lot of perks. And both of those people learn that they're going to lose their jobs. And as they look around, they, they just know they're not going to find anything commensurate to those jobs. One of them has no relationship with Christ. How does he respond to that news? Well, he's devastated. Because this is his only significance. It's his whole identity. He doesn't have any other security that he can give his family other than, I make this much money. That's, that's it. And so he, he starts having panic attacks. And he develops ner- nervous tics. And he begins to drink more. And he kicks the dog when he gets home. And he snaps at the kids. Because the whole foundation of this man's life has completely crumbled. Now the other person has a relationship with Christ. How does that person respond? Well, would you notice that Jesus, Jesus says that that person weeps. Genuinely sad. Notice Jesus doesn't say that they put some sappy cliche on this piece of bad news that they just got, that, that, that they weep, but... I want you to notice also in this passage that Jesus says that the person who weeps is, present tense, is blessed even as he weeps. Now that's, that, I don't know if you know that, notice it, but that's a paradox. Because outside the community of Christ, only laughing is associated with blessing. But inside the community of Christ, it's the exact opposite. The word blessing is the Greek word makarios, which refers to a sense of deep satisfaction, a, a profound sense of well-being. And Jesus is teaching that, that he gives his people, when they enter into a relationship with him, he gives them 
a sense of deep satisfaction and well-being that is impervious to circumstances. And not only is it impervious to circumstances, but it also gets stronger when they lose something that conventional wisdom says that they ought to value. Like it gets stronger. Now again, I want to make sure you understand this. In addition to reading the book on Carson, which was for fun, I've also been reading a book by a man now deceased by the name of Gerald May, who was a psychologist and and he was a Christian who specialized in dealing with addictions. And he was writing, the book was, was called The Dark Night of the Soul. He was writing about something that Christian mystics used to call the dark night of the soul and how God would use these dark nights of the soul to deepen relationship with him and to free him, free people from their attachments. And he talked about a time that he went through, that he had cancer and that he had to go through chemo. And he, and he summarizes how God used it in his life. He, he says it this way. He says, I wouldn't have missed it for the world, but I certainly would never want to go through it again. Now, that's exactly the attitude that Jesus is teaching here. Not that we want poverty, not that we want hunger, not that we want grief, not that we want exclusion. We don't have, like, we're not a community of people that have a martyr complex. You know, just throw all the bad stuff on me, you know. Praise God, you know, all this bad stuff coming. No, it's not that. It's just that when those things come, and they will, Live long enough, it comes. When they come and they will, we value them, we value even those things for how God uses them in our lives. While people outside the community of God would avoid them at all costs because nothing good could come out of that, people inside the community of God say, we know that God can use even that. In other words, God makes us psychologically free from the control of things that the world prizes, that the world values. Now, you'll often hear me say that good psychology is good theology made personal. I want you to think about the radical sociological implications that come from the psychological freedom that Jesus gives people in his new community. What are the sociological implications implications of being freed from the control of having to be successful, having to be powerful, having to have recognition, uh, having to have comfort. What are the sociological implications of that? Well, listen to this. In the new community of Jesus Christ, the church, geeks, Greeks, freaks, jocks, cheerleaders, sorority girls, ex-prostitutes, recovering addicts, and bankers can all appreciate one another because we've all experienced the power of Christ and we've experienced a complete reversal of values. We no longer determine who's in and out of the community on the basis of the things the world values because we have complete equality, all of us, at the cross of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us. That's what makes the community of Jesus Christ, the church, so unique. And this is what City Church is striving to be, that kind of place. I want to make make something very clear. I have heard some people say, oh, everybody, 
everybody has said it has said it with good intention. So if you're one of the people that has said it, I've heard people outside say it too. But if you've said it, uh, I understand, I know that you had good intentions. But I've heard people say that it seems like City Church's vision is to reach the hurting and the down and out, you know, the, the homeless, the addict, the poor, the incarcerated. Let me tell you something. My answer to that is nope. That's not our vision. Our vision is to reach people. We don't value those people any more or any less than we value people who are successful, rich, and powerful. Here's the thing. We just don't distinguish between the two. One is no more important to Jesus than the other. One is no less important to Jesus than the other. No more important to us or no less important to us than the other. We just want to reach people through the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. Whoever, wherever, whatever their status, and we want to weave them into this new community of Jesus that is so radically different than any other community in the world. That's what the church is supposed to be about, and that's what City Church is striving to be, that kind of place. See, what distinguishes, one of the things that distinguishes the local church, this radically new supernatural community that has been formed, is that the people inside hold a radically different set of values than the people outside. That's one of the things that distinguishes us. Here's the second, and this will be much quicker. The second is how people inside the church, inside this radically new community of Christ, treat people who are outside the community of Christ. Okay, look at this. Verses, verse 27. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, don't stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But he says, love your enemies do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get, to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Now, again, I don't have time to go into all that uh, today. I just Here's what I want you to get. Over the years, over the centuries, there have been groups of wrong-headed followers of Christ who have said... Uh, we're supposed to be separate and different from the world, and so we're going to withdraw from the world, and we're going to be separate because we're different, and we're, we're just going to separate from the world. We don't care about them out there. We care about us, and we're going to be really tight-knit and love on each other, uh, but we, we don't care about the world. Uh, that's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, I want you to notice that Jesus kind of ups the ante. He doesn't just talk about people who are different than you. He talks in this passage about your enemies. 
the people who hate us as followers of Christ, the people who uh, oppress us as followers of Christ, the people that say that uh, we're dumb, the people that say that we're not uh, very sophisticated, uh, the people who say that we're not very intelligent, the people who say that we're so intolerant that we could possibly believe in Jesus, and the people who persecute Christians because of their belief in Jesus Christ. Jesus says when you come across someone who can't stand you for your beliefs and wants to mistreat you, he says first, in verse 28, he says, pray for them. Now that's radically different than how the world treats people who are outside the community. He says, I want you to engage in an inner discipline in which you drain yourself or in which you allow me to drain you of any ill will toward those people who are your enemies. But he goes further than that. He doesn't just talk about this inner work of prayer. He doesn't just say, refrain from revenge because we talked about this last week that that's not really love. Christianity is more than the absence of sin. It's the presence of Christ. And so he says, he says, I want to do, I want you to do an outer work too. I want you to do good to those very people who mistreat you. And he lists a number of examples of that. I don't have time to go into all those. Just understand this, that when he says, you know, turn the other cheek and, and uh, all, all that stuff, he's not saying let people walk all over you. That, that's not the point. His point is actively do what is best for another person out of love, not out of pride, not out of anger, not out of selfishness. Just actively do what is best for another person out of love. Now, this is the community of Jesus. A radically different community than any other community in the world. People whose values are different and people whose behavior toward people who are outside the community is very different. And that's what City Church is striving to be. Now look, I want you to understand something. City Church is never going to be a perfect place. Do, do you know why? Do you know why there are so many commands in the New Testament to Christians about loving other Christians? Do you know why? You know why there's so many of those commands about loving other Christians? Because the church the local church isn't made up of natural friends. In fact, the local church is made up of natural enemies. What binds the local church, what binds city church together, is not what binds together any other human community. Any other human community is bound together by common education and common race and common income and and, and common politics and common nationality and common accents and common geography and common jobs and things like that. But Christians come together not because they're a natural collection, but because they've all been saved by Jesus and they owe him a common allegiance. 
We're natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. That's what the local church is. And that's what City Church is striving to be. That's our vision. To be that kind of community. And so understand, we're... When we talk about experience community over here, we say believe, and then we say experience community and unlearn. You know, we want you to unlearn the values that you had outside. And when you come to Christ, we, we want you to learn a whole new set of values. Just unlearn the old ones and adopt a new set of values. But when we say experience community, we're not... You know, you can experience that a little bit when you come on Sunday morning, right? I mean, you look around and go, well, you know, there's a lot of people that are different than me here. But where you really experience community at City Church is through our community groups. They're groups of people that meet in homes, you know, 12, 14 people, they meet in homes. Um, what they do when they get there is that, you know, we show, a, we show a video of someone's testimony. We use these videos, they're called I Am Second videos. Most of you have probably seen them, but we, we, some of them. We, we show one of those videos and then we talk afterwards about what was just said and we apply it to our own lives and we we sort of re-evangelize ourselves, if you will, uh, about the power of Christ, and then we talk about what difference that could make in our lives. And that's where you begin to experience community. I've been in a number of community groups over the years. I've been in community groups with um, ex-drug addicts. I've been in community groups with people who had all sorts of different occupations for me. And... um, one of the most profound community groups I was in was with a young man who had leukemia, and everyone in our group was with him in his hospital room as he breathed his last breath. He was about 28 years old. He wasn't very successful. He certainly wasn't wealthy. Wasn't a celebrity like Johnny Carson in any way, shape, or form. It really didn't matter to us. Uh, We just loved him. And as he breathed his last breath, everyone in his community group was right there with him as he passed from this earth into eternity. That's community. That's community. And we would challenge our vision. You know, we want to see everybody in this church in a community group like that. We want you to know community. We want you to experience it. And as you leave today, there's a table out there. You can stop and say, yeah, I'd like to be a part of a community group. Or you could go out to our website and do that, do it another week, whatever. But we would challenge you to become part of a community group. That's, that's, That's what we want you to experience, the radical new community that Jesus Christ has created in this group of people called the local church. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we are not uh, natural brothers and sisters here. It's not natural. Uh, We recognize that. In fact, outside of you, all of our relationships unravel. Lord, we want to submit to your authority. We want to be part of your community. And Lord, would you knit City Church together? And 
pray that we would be very distinct and that those on the inside and those on the outside would see how distinct we are by how we treat one another and how we treat people outside and the things that we value and the things that we don't value. And Lord, we, we, we want to be a people that just, we, all we want to do is reach people and let us be that kind of people that just love people and want to reach people in your name.